people have opinions without being fully informed. Trust me, I'm a Canadian here. I don't care if you're a Christian, Messianic, or Hebrew roots. I want to know if your theology is biblical. Maybe I'm right. Of course I'm right. If you're going to cite a source, be responsible. You know, cite your source. Your longest college. Hey, we're just having a conversation. There's only 36 people listening anyway, right? You can Google it. Wow, at what point does history matter? At what point does truth matter? An alien invasion. Is it biblical? Of course it is. Look, there's a way to do scholarship and a way not to do scholarship. you got to set your source. Who's your source? My best friend's sister's boyfriend's brother's girlfriend heard from this guy who knows his kid is going with the girl. And that about sums it up. What up and shalom, welcome to the Robin Caleb Show, the show where theology matters, scholarship counts, and theology matters. My name is Caleb Hegg, of course with me today, also Rob Vanhoff. What up Rob, how's it going brother? It's going well, excited about our interview with Dr. Petrie. Yes, it. for those who don't know, who might be tuning in, it is uh, this is our Passover special. We do it every year during the week of Passover. This year, of course, being April 12th is the day that uh, this uh, will air. So uh, we are very excited that not only is it uh, Passover, my favorite holiday of the year, but it is also, well, I guess, uh, let's see here, in, in uh, Christianity, uh, it's uh, uh, Easter week, right? It's the week of of the Pascha, right? Same same in uh, same word in in other other places of the world. Anyway, um, so yeah, I hope that your Passover is going well for everyone who is out there uh, celebrating this wonderful festival. And of course, every year on on this day, what do we do? We get together and we talk about the Passion, the Passion chronology, and what our Lord was doing at this time, um, and uh, how we think it all works together. Is John at odds with the synoptics? Are the synoptics at odds with John? Uh, you know, what in the world is going on? Where's the language lead us? All these kind of things. And today, Are we... the Essenes involved? Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, usually we bring my father, Tim Hegg, on to talk about the uh, Passion Chronology, but uh, this year we have a very special treat, and we should just get into it, because why not? This year we, uh, we are uh, going to plug this book. It is Jesus in the Last Supper, a book that I've had my head in for a very long time. And our guest today is Dr. Brant, Brant Petrie. Before we uh, get him on air, I'm also going to say that he's written uh, other books. I'll give his bio to you in just a second here. But uh, the other book that I have on my desk, which I've spent some time in recently, is this one, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the, of the Eucharist. Also a very good book. And so uh, without further ado, let's uh, bring Dr. P Brant Petrie on. Dr. Brant Petrie is professor of sacred scripture at Notre Dame Seminary in New Orleans, Louisiana. He earned his PhD in theology from the University of Notre Dame, where he specialized in the study of the New Testament and ancient Judaism. He is the author of Jesus, the Tribulation and the End of the Exile, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist, Jesus the Bridegroom, Jesus and the Last Supper, and most recently, The Case for Jesus. Thank you very much for being with us, and welcome Dr. Brant Petrie. Thanks for having me, Caleb. Appreciate it. Okay, so uh, we've our audience is well aware that we've been pumping this up for quite some time, and we're very excited to have you. We've had people send questions in. We've had people uh, already debating on these issues on Facebook and on Twitter. And uh, so I'm going to kind of uh, let you take this for a, a little bit because now the the one question I want to start with 
I've been calling your hypothesis, as you call it in your book, the Passover hypothesis. Now, I don't think that you're necessarily the first one to uh, put forward some of these these uh, beliefs. Uh, in fact, in my research, I've I've seen uh, all the way back into the 1800s some of these uh, some of these uh, 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 theories have been put forward. Did you coin the phrase Passover hypothesis? Yeah. So, okay. Um, about 10 years ago, I started out on this project writing the book, uh, Jesus and the Last Supper. And um, I had an interest in the question of the day of the Last Supper at the time, but I didn't realize that in writing a book on it, uh, that it would, that I would have to kind of address it in as much detail as I ended up doing. So this became a much more complicated problem than I realized at first, uh, you know, at, at first blush. So um, one of the things I, I noticed as I was working through the scholarly literature on the apparent contradiction between the synoptics and John was that a lot of it was just confusing. So what I tried to do in the book is lay out what I considered the major hypotheses and then also give them like simple and memorable names that would capture what the essence of each theory was in order to help people keep them straight and remember them, right? So um, in the chapter on the day of the Last Supper, I basically lay out four major solutions to the apparent contradiction between John and the synoptics, which by the way, if, if, if listeners or viewers aren't familiar with that, the standard, uh, or in fact, I should say, one of the most prominent apparent contradictions between the synoptics and John is the question of whether the Last Supper is a Jewish Passover meal or not. That's really what we're gonna be talking about when we talk about the date of the Last Supper. So um, if you look at the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's very clear, very clear, uh, that the Last Supper takes place at the same time as the ordinary Jewish Passover meal, the evening after the lambs are sacrificed in the temple, right? So the Last Supper is a Passover meal in the synoptic. But if you go to the Gospel of John, it appears, at least, that John's account of the Last Supper places the meal 24 hours before the ordinary Jewish Passover meal. So the question becomes, which of these is, is right, which of these is wrong, or is there some way to, to reconcile the apparent contradiction? And in that question of the date of the Last Supper, um, there are basically four major hypotheses. Number one, what I call the uh, Essene hypothesis, which is the idea that John and the synoptics accounts are both correct, but that they reflect two different calendars. That John reflects the lunar calendar of the temple establishment and the, and the Pharisees and whatnot, and that the synoptics reflect the solar calendar that was followed by the Essenes. Uh, so that'd be the, called the Essene hypothesis. The second major theory is what I call the Johannine hypothesis, and this is the majority position these days. According to the Johannine hypothesis, uh, John's account of the Last Supper, in which the Last Supper is not a formal Passover meal, it takes place 24 hours in advance, that account is correct, and the synoptics uh, are, for lack of a better word, wrong. They have transformed Jesus' meal into a Passover retroactively in order to make more of a theological point, but Jesus was actually uh, celebrating the Last Supper 24 hours in advance. That's that's the Johannine hypothesis. According to that view, Jesus would die on the same afternoon that the Passover lambs are being sacrificed in the temple, right? The third theory is what I call the synoptic hypothesis. And this one, I call it that because according to this view, which is like Joachim Miramias' view, um, the synoptics are right and John's wrong. In other words, the Last Supper was a ordinary Jewish Passover meal, and John has altered the date of the Last Supper in order to make a theological point trying to have Jesus die at the same time as the lambs. Um, and so I, after surveying those three major uh, hypotheses, and we can talk about some of the strengths and weaknesses of them when we get in, um, and, and after not just surveying them, frankly, what I did with each one is I would try to hold it 
like as my view for about a year at least just to sit with it and kind of see what are the major strengths what are the major weaknesses before I would go on and take another position uh, in or in this in the attempt to be fair so the fourth and final position which is the one I end up adopting in the book Jesus and the Last Supper is what I call the Passover hypothesis I call it that because according to this solution um, both John and the synoptics are correct both John and the synoptics are right in their chronology of the passion of, of Jesus uh, what appears to be a contradiction actually is a result of misinterpreting the word Passover, Pascha, in in particular in the Gospel of, of John, in John's account. So what I try to argue in the Passover hypothesis is that the solution to the apparent contradiction between John and the synoptics lies in a contemporary misunderstanding of Jewish Passover language as it was reflected on the ground in the first century AD uh, in sources such as Josephus, Philo, as well as the scriptures themselves, and then later rabbinic tradition reflects this as well. So that's that's the thrust of the Passover hypothesis, that basically John and the synoptics are both right. It's us who are wrong in the way we interpret John's gospel. So we've talked about the Essene hypothesis, and, and we've kind of discussed some of the yeah. weaknesses that we believe are part of that. That Let's leave that out for now, since it's not yeah, sure. one of one of the major, or I, I would say that's probably the least held to out of, out of all of the four that you've presented. So uh, maybe just quickly give us uh, maybe some of the, the strong points and the weaknesses of both the John and the synoptic uh, hypothesis. Okay, well, um, when it comes to the Joannine hypothesis, let's start there. I mean, one of the main, uh, well, I, in some ways, the only way to really see the strength of, uh, of the Passover hypothesis is to knock out some of the weaknesses of Joannine first. So just a couple of things. One of the things Joannine hypothesis people will often say is that uh, if you look at the accounts of the Last Supper, it is a lambless Passover meal. Okay, this is a really standard argument. They'll say, uh, if you read the synoptic accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it never says there was a lamb at the Last Supper. Uh, it never uses the word arnion in Greek uh, to, to describe, explicitly mention a lamb. And so what they'll try to do is say, ah, if you look, that absence of the lamb points to the fact that this was actually celebrated the day before the Jewish Passover, right? Um, and that it was a kind of lambless Passover meal that Jesus instituted 24 hours in advance precisely because he knew he was going to die, that he knew he was going to be killed. Uh, and so he had to, he had to uh, uh, do his uh, in a kind of anticipatory way the night before. Um, the problem with that hypothesis, or with that argument from the Joannine hypothesis, is that if you read the synoptic accounts in Greek and not just in English, it's absolutely unequivocal that, that a Passover lamb is present at the Last Supper. Uh, the most obvious example of this is in Luke chapter 22, um, verses uh, 7 and following. I'll just, just a couple of quick verses to give you an idea of what I'm talking about. So it says this in 22.7, Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Uh, and the Greek word there is on which the Pascha, Pascha had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Pascha for us, that we may eat it. <laughs> right? So they said to him, where will you have us prepare it? Uh, and he said, you know, go into the city, you'll find a man carrying a jar of water, so on and so forth. And in verse 11, it'll say, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I am to eat the Pascha with my disciples? Right. And, and then it goes on to mention the word Pascha a bunch of times. So the, the point here is Luke's first use of the word Passover is explicitly a reference to the lamb. 
Uh, it's in, I mean, when he says, on which the Pascha had to be sacrificed, that's clearly a reference to the sacrifice of the lamb. So for someone to come around later and say that because the word arnion, lamb, isn't used there, there is no lamb at the Last Supper, is basically absurd. I mean, you, you, because the common way of referring to the lamb eaten at the Passover meal in first century Judaism was just to call it Pascha, was to call it uh, the Passover. That, in fact, was the major, you know, the kind of primary definition uh, of the word Passover. So that that argument is is really, really unsound. Uh, it just doesn't hold water at all. Well, that's one of the popular arguments. A second popular argument for the Joannine hypothesis is that, um, well, let's see, there are a couple of them. I'm trying to hit what are the most interesting ones in problem? Okay, wait, hang, on, same- hang on, just oh, a second. Sure. I, I want to stop real quick. So this actually looks like, uh, so so you're saying that the in the Johannine hypothesis, uh, the argument is that uh, there is no lamb present, yeah. according to John. But there's a lambless Passover, right? N.T. Wright and others take this position, too. They say Jesus celebrated a, last, a Passover meal without a lamb 24 hours in advance. I actually took that in my first book, my dissertation. That was my position as well. So, I mean, I've held that position before. So, but your, your point is, is that, um, and I mean, maybe, maybe we shouldn't ask this question now, but, uh, in passages like Luke 20, uh, 22, seven, and, uh, there's other passages as well, right? We have uh, Mark 14, 12, and then Matthew 26, 17. They all have uh, basically the same wording first day of unleavened bread, the day that the Passover was sacrificed, these kind of things. Yeah. I, I put it a little more strongly. Mark 14, 12, Luke 22, seven explicitly linked the word Pascha to sacrifice. And you can only sacrifice a lamb. So in other words, some scholars with the Joan hypothesis, what they want to try to do is suggest that certain remnants of tradition in the synoptics depict a lamb depict a lambless Passover meal. And therefore, John and the synoptics converge in showing us that the or, that the Last Supper wasn't an ordinary Passover meal, that it was 24 hours in advance. And my point is, you can't do that. The synoptics clearly mention a lamb at the Last Supper. They just don't use the word lamb. They use the imagery of sacrificing the Pascha because the Pascha was the ordinary word for the lamb. Okay. okay. I, I want you to keep going because, I, and we'll get back to these because I, I have more questions about these passages, but go ahead. Absolutely. Okay. Another uh, famous, this one's really famous, uh, argument for the Joannine hypothesis is from uh, the Talmud, in fact. Okay. So there's a passage in the Talmud, which many scholars will refer to, and they'll say, well, uh, this text, it's in uh, Babylonian Talmud, Sanhedrin 43a, says that Yeshu was, quote, hanged on the eve of Passover, right? And so a number of scholars are going to cite the Babylonian Talmud uh, as saying, look, here we've got non-New Testament, post-biblical, rabbinic evidence for the Joannine hypothesis, because it's saying uh, Jesus, Yeshu, Yeshua, was uh, hanged or crucified on the eve of Passover. So that would kind of converge with the scholarly idea that that uh, Jesus is executed um, before the Passover meal is eaten on Friday night, not after the Passover meal is eaten on Thursday night. Am I, am I staying clear here? Is this, yes, this yeah, good? you're good. Okay. Um, and I used to think, wow, that's a pretty probative argument, man. If the rabbis say he was crucified before the Passover was eaten, and he, then the Last Supper couldn't have been a Passover meal. And then I went back and actually read the Talmud. Uh, in other words, you go back and you look at that line in context. Most New Testament scholars will just cite the, the words, Yeshua was hanged on the eve of Passover. They don't give you the full context. And there's a reason for that, because if you go back and read the full context, this is clearly not referring to Jesus of Nazareth. All right, it's not referring to Yeshua of Nazareth. For example, uh, I'll just I'll just read a bit of the text. It says here, on the eve of Passover, Yeshua was hanged. For 40 days before the execution take place, 
took place, a herald went forth and cried out, he is going forth to be stoned because he's practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. And then it goes on to say a number of things about him. It says with Yeshu, it was different. He was connected with the government and he had five disciples, Matthai, Nakai, Nezer, Buni, and Todah. Okay, and then it goes on to say some other things. So what's fascinating is if you look at this text, the guy that's being described in Babylonian Talmud Sanhedrin, uh, yes, he's called, his name is Yeshu, but that's a common Jewish name. I mean, we know that, right? This is basically the Aramaic version of Joshua. There are lots of little Jewish Joshuas running around in the first century AD. And this particular guy, Yeshua, he was, first of all and foremost, he was not uh, crucified, he was stoned. Secondly, before he was stoned, there were uh, 40 days, they basically arrested him 40 days before his execution, before he was stoned to death. That can't, that's, that's not true of Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, third, he was accused of being practiced, uh, accused of practicing sorcery, which is not Jesus' accusation. If you look at the all four Gospels, he's accused of blasphemy, which is a whole different issue, right? And then fourth and finally, it says that uh, this Yeshua was connected with the government. There's no evidence that Jesus was connected with Pontius Pilate or the Herodians. And, and this guy had five disciples, none of whom had the same names as the twelve, with the possible exception of a guy named Matthias. So, in other words, as uh, Gustav Dahlman pointed out at the beginning of the 20th century, that this Talmud passage is about some other guy named Yeshu who was stoned to death and executed for a sorcery. It has nothing to do with Jesus of Nazareth, if you put it in context, right? But this is a good example of how scholars sometimes are sloppy in their use of the Talmud. Uh, they, they'll look at a line or two, but they don't go back and look at the context. Okay, so let's move now. Um, we've we've looked at some of the arguments Ooh. for the... the Johanna, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. Yep. Because okay, this, this one's probably the, the most important one. The, the most widespread argument for the idea that not only is John's chronology right, but it's the only one that's plausible, is the idea that Jesus could not have been executed on a feast day. This is, this is a big one, right? So you'll see scholars who are advocates of the Joanine impossible uh, hypothesis say, it's impossible that Jesus could have been tried by the Sanhedrin and executed on a feast day, because if you look at Mishnah Betzah, the tractate on Betzah, it says that um, basically there's no sitting in judgment on a feast day. You can't do it, right? Um, now, it's another one of those cases when you go back to the actual Mishnahic passage, you read it in context, you can see the scholars are taking it out of context. Uh, I don't want to go into all the details here. Um, let's just say this, that if you look at it in context, the Mishnah is clearly talking about minor court activities in local Sanhedrins throughout the land after the destruction of the temple. They're not talking about the Jerusalem temple. Um, so it's questionable whether that ruling would even hold for the first century AD. But even more importantly, in the actual tractate on the Sanhedrin, in Mishnah and Tosefta, the two collections of early rabbinic traditions, uh, it also says that if someone is a false prophet, all right, that you have to execute them on the feast so that Deuteronomy 17 might be fulfilled, that the people will see and hear and fear and obey. In other words, there were certain cases, capital crimes, that you actually would keep the, 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 the criminal until the feast day and then execute them on the feast day as a public show of warning to the people not to you know, transgress the Torah, not to be a false prophet or to lead others astray or commit some kind of grave crime. That's in Tosefta Sanhedrin 11, verse 17. So, <laughs> look, it, I mean, this is, this is really important. For, 
and many scholars who say, oh, the Jonah hypothesis uh, is the only one that makes sense. What they'll say is it's implausible that Sanhedrin would have put him to death on a feast day. It's hard to imagine. And they have no first century evidence that it was actually prohibited. And what they, they almost invariably ignore is that the, the same rabbinic traditions they'll cite in other cases actually say you have to execute certain certain criminals on a feast day. So that would just go to show there that, and that's, I think, probably the most, uh, uh, it's the most popular argument for the Jonah hypothesis, because at first glance, it kind of rings true, like, wow, they would never do that on Pesach itself, on Passover itself. Well, except that the Mishnah and the Tosefta say that certain cases need to be carried out on that day. So it's uh, just a good example of trying to canvas all the, the evidence there. And when you start, basically, when you start picking the, the major arguments of the uh, Jonah hypothesis apart, a lot of them don't hold water, okay? A lot of them don't hold water, and they're not as persuasive as people at first glance may think. In fact, E.P. Sanders said um, in his famous book on Judaism that one of the most debated issues was what you could do on a feast day and what you couldn't do on a feast day, because in Leviticus it says that you can't do any work on a Sabbath, but on a feast day, feast day you can't do any laborious work. Mm -hmm. So the question was, well, wait, what's laborious work? How does exactly this play out? And, and frankly, when it comes to the first century, we don't have a lot of laws that tell us exactly what, you know, the Sadducean leaders in the Sanhedrin thought about that matter. That's just kind of open, uh, open question. But all four Gospels are really clear, as we'll see in a minute, that Jesus is, is in fact, executed during Passover. Okay, so then the synoptic hypothesis, is it, is it fair to say that the Passover hypothesis basically agrees with a lot of the synoptic hypothesis, but simply attempts to make John line up with the synoptics? That's right. So the next major hypothesis, the synoptic hypothesis, that, that the synoptics are right and John is wrong, basically all the strengths of that hypothesis, all the positive arguments for the Last Supper being a Passover meal, I agree with. Okay, It's the idea that John altered the date of the crucifixion that I disagree with. Okay. So what advocates of the Jonah, uh, I'm sorry, slow down, Brandon. <laughs> I don't want to confuse everybody by saying the wrong thing. What advocates of the synoptic hypothesis, like Joachim Yeremias will argue, is that John changed the date of the crucifixion in order to make it correlate with the, the Passover lambs dying. Okay, in other words, what, uh, Raymond Brown uh, did this uh, also in his uh, commentary. He argued, well, John moves... Uh, well, he, he, he makes the claim, C.K. Barrett actually argued it, that John has Jesus die on Friday afternoon at the same time as the lambs in order to show that he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so he'll say that, uh, Raymond Brown did say this, he said that when John says Jesus was brought before Pilate at noon in John 19, 14, uh, that that was in order to, to, to emphasize to you as a reader, that Jesus is dying at the very same time that the Passover lambs are being sacrificed in the temple. And that has a lot of like homiletical or you know uh, power for people like, whoa, wow, Jesus died at the same time as the Passover lambs in the temple. And John's signaling it to us <laughs> in 1914. Well, the problem is the Passover lambs were not sacrificed at noon. That's just completely erroneous. There's no first century evidence they were sacrificed at noon. All of the evidence we have from Josephus, uh, and the Mishnah, all of them tell us, no, they were, Passover lambs were sacrificed around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. They weren't sacrificed at noon. They had to be sacrificed, in fact, later, after the evening offering, after the, the, the Tamid is, is given. So um, although it preaches well, <laughs> that just doesn't work on the ground. In other words, uh, John isn't saying what a lot of people who, who take the synoptic hypothesis say he is. 
Uh, and so the question becomes, well, wait, maybe, maybe we are misinterpreting some of the passages in John about the chronology. Maybe all the arguments for the Last Supper being a Passover meal from the synoptic hypothesis, uh, which I kind of skipped over, there are things like this. Um, number one, the synoptics do mission a lamb. Number two, the Last Supper is eaten in Jerusalem and in Bethany. Why do they have to go into Jerusalem and eat it if it's just an ordinary meal? They could have eaten it outside the city. Well, the reason they go into Jerusalem is because you have to celebrate the Passover meal in Jerusalem, according to the Torah, Deuteronomy 12, right? You got to be in the, 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 the chosen city. You got to be in the chosen place. Um, third, he eats the supper at night. That's not an ordinary thing for them to do. They usually eat in, in the evening, but this meal is clearly at night. Well, why would they do that? Well, because it's the Passover meal. So a number of scholars, Joachim Aramias, E.P. Sanders, uh, have pointed these elements out that in the synoptic account clearly show this is a Passover meal. Even the, the, the minor detail like Jesus and his disciples sang a hymn and then they went out to Gethsemane. Well, that's not ordinarily the case that you sing in hymns on a regular evening meal. But for Passover night, it makes perfect sense. What are they doing? They're singing the Hallel Psalms, right? Psalm 113 to 118. So uh, the synoptic hypothesis is correct in all of its arguments for the Last Supper being a Passover meal in the synoptics. Where I think it's wrong is the way it's interpreting John in saying that John moved the crucifixion uh, to before the Passover in order to have Jesus die at the same time as the lambs. So there, there. this is wonderful. Thank you so much for this uh, overview. Oh, good. I'm not basically, being I was hoping. From, no, no. <laughs> basically, so, so we come to John. So we establish the synoptics. We're happy. We've read Matthew. We've read Mark. We've read Luke. And we start reading John, and we're going to encounter these flags, yes. right? That and 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 what the the Yochanin hypothesis has done is is taken certain little milestones. We starting with behold the, the Lamb of God, perhaps mm -hmm. as you mentioned from the beginning, and we start putting them in this in this little box. And by the time we get to the end of John, from that lens, we say, oh, John's some, done something different, yeah. um, right? And what. And so what you've had to do in your work is to stop at each of these milestones and say, wait a minute, are we imposing uh, on, on one extreme a convenient, something similar maybe to the JEDP, right? Uh, right. Something that's in the academic uh, presentation of, of why the Gospels are, are you know, divergent and how they're different accounts or whatever. Um, on one hand, to the other stand of someone who's just saying, you know, it's not that they're doubting uh, the inspiration of Scripture, but that they're open to this midrashic kind of uh, liberty, maybe that the Gospel of John, according to John, might be uh, using as a license to paint a picture um, that has midrashic traction, kind of maybe like what you were saying. Yeah, like a theological so, motive is driving the way he tells the narrative. Uh, that's that's what people often think that he's doing something madrasic with the, with the uh, crucifixion. And what I'm saying is actually no, he's giving the same chronology as the synoptics, but he's using technical terms about the Passover that we are unfamiliar with, and therefore when we encounter those flags, that's very nicely put, those milestones as you put it. We misinterpret them, and therefore we create an apparent contradiction with the synoptics that doesn't actually exist if you put John's terminology in its first century Jewish context. That's that's what I'm arguing. Okay, so, so if we can walk through some of those, I can show yeah, you what I'm talking about. 
Yeah, I, I do want to walk through some of those. I want to go back real quick, to, and this is where we'll start walking through them. I want to go back to your uh, reference of Luke 22.7. Um, some people have uh, have suggested that hold to the Johannine hypothesis that Luke 22.7, Mark 14.12, Matthew 26.17, they, you know, they say it's the first day of unleavened bread, the day that the Passover lamb was sacrificed, so on and so forth. Uh, some have suggested that this is just maybe uh, a, a general term Right, because uh, it seems as though uh, John in John 19, it seems as though he contradicts this, right? Um, and mm-hmm. so they've suggested that maybe this term of the day that the Passover lambs was sacrificed is maybe a general term, like we might say, like uh, it's Christmas, but we really mean it's Christmas time. Um, yeah, yeah. Why have you taken a view that's different than that? Why do you think that's that's not correct? Uh, I don't think that that's cor- correct. Although I'll. St- as you'll see in a minute, I think there's a grain of truth in that when it comes to the use of Passover in John, because it's going to be more ambiguous in John. But in Luke, I don't think that it, that idea of a, of a general meaning of Passover works because of the words themselves in context, which is the, in the account of the preparation of the Last Supper, which many discussions of this, frankly, they just ignore. They skip over the whole episode of Jesus sending the two disciples into Jerusalem to prepare the Pesach. In context, this isn't a general reference because it says the day of unleavened bread on which the Pascha had to be sacrificed. And then Jesus picks up that word, go and prepare the Pascha for us that we may eat it. Like in context, those two sentences can only make sense if it's a reference to the lamb itself. That's the only way to make sense of those words in context. Um, And so that's why I would say that that argument, although it's understandable, because as we'll see in a minute, the word Passover was ambiguous out of context. Uh, In context, you have to look at the clues that give you the meaning. And in Luke 22 and in Mark 14, the meaning is clearly a reference to the Passover lamb. I don't see any other way to to interpret it. Don't we also see in in Josephus and I think also in Philo, right? Uh, they, They talk about the day that the Passover lamb was sacrificed. They also attribute it directly to Nisan 14, correct? Well, yeah. Oh, oh, I see what you're getting at. Okay, yeah. Well, sometimes people say Luke's getting this wrong because you didn't associate, I'm sorry, you didn't um, actually sacrifice the lamb on 14 Nisan. I'm sorry, slow down. That (laughs) the lamb was sacrificed on 14 Nisan, which is actually not part of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, right? It's the day before the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So in the Torah, you have 14 Nisan, and then you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, seven-day feast that begins on 15. And so what they're saying there is that Luke is a little confused, uh, you know, it's kind of reflecting a Gentile uh, background. Uh, that's that's that understandable, but incorrect. Because if you look at Josephus, what Josephus actually said is that by the time you get to the first century A.D., you can use the Feast of Unleavened Bread or you can use Passover to refer to the entire eight days. It had become a kind of general way to referring to the what we might call the Passover octave. And Luke actually tells you that in Luke twenty-two one when he says, "Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, as the most." Uh, drew near, which is called Pascha, right? So he's letting you know that the two terms are interchangeable by the first century AD. So it's not an error on his part. It's just a uh, it's a linguistic development that takes place in the second temple period that that isn't present in the Torah, but has, you know, these things get loose as they get joined together over time, and people start to talk about them in one, as one big octave rather than these two distinct feasts like they are in, in Leviticus or Deuteronomy. Okay, so there's there's some main um, there's some main passages in John that people always uh, always point to. John 13, yeah. 1 and 2. Yep. Uh, John 19, uh, what is it, 1912. John 19, yep. 31. Uh, yep, take us point. through some of these. How do, you, how do we reconcile these? I'm sorry, I said okay. ni- uh, John 19, 12. It's actually 1914. I apologize. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's okay. Uh, it, what I'd like to do, I think the easiest way to do this is actually to uh, first set the terms of discussion, and then we'll just walk through them in order as John gives them to us, sure. and that'll help us kind of see the progression in the gospel. So Perfect. before we look at the text of John, let me just make one main linguistic point. If you look at sources in the first century AD, the first thing you have to realize is that when it comes to the word Passover, Pascha in Greek, there are at least four definitions for the word Passover in, in Second Temple sources, and uh, they are as follows. Number one, it can be used to refer to the Passover lamb that was sacrificed on 14 Nisan. Number two, it can be used to refer to the Passover meal, which was eaten the evening uh, on 15 Nisan, right after the sacrifice. Number three, it can be used to refer to the Passover peace offerings, which were sacrifices that were offered all week long. This is the one most people aren't familiar with, because in our experience of, of Pascha, Right. We usually think of a, of a seder, of a Passover seder that lasts for one night. But in the in the in the second temple period, while the while the temple was still around, Passover wasn't just one day; it was eight days. You'd have the sacrifice, and then you have seven days of feasting. You go into the temple, you're offering sacrifices, you're reposing, you're reclining, you're, you're rejoicing, and you're remembering what the Lord had that's done. That's De Deuteronomy sixteen too, right? That's yes. That's exactly right. Is that correct? 16, so, there, so that's you eat it seven days with the unleavened right. bread. That's right. Very good. Uh, although I, I, uh, that by the time you get to the second temple period is even more of a lived reality because in Deuteronomy they're still on the cusp of the land. By the time they're in the second right. temple period, they're living in, in they're in that land, and you got to go to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. I mean, we will have Passovers all over the world, but it was different in the first century A.D. with the temple. It's still around. So Passover is a whole octave in a sense, right? And during that time, there are sacrifices going on. And guess what those sacrifices are called? Pesachim. They're called Passovers, right? In Deuteronomy 16, 2 and 3, and then in 2 Chronicles chapter 30 and 35, it talks about the seven days they're offering sacrifices. In 2 Chronicles 35, it calls them Pesachim. It calls them Passovers that uh, Hilkiah and Josiah offered all these Pesachim, Passovers, for the whole seven-day festival. That's the one most people aren't familiar with. And then finally, number four would be just the Passover week. In other words, the idea of this seven to eight day time period that could be referred to as Pascha, right? So four definitions, the lamb, the meal, the peace offerings of the week, and then the, the week itself, the whole seven days. Which, by the way, I just want to throw this out. Um, as a Catholic, this is completely believable to me because in Catholicism, the word Easter works the same way, okay? So if I say Happy Easter to you, uh, what day the what day is it? Well, that depends. It could be Saturday night for the Easter vigil. It could be Sunday morning for the Easter celebration. It could also be Wednesday of Easter week, because in Catholicism, the whole week is the Easter octave. It's a whole week. Uh, and guess what the Latin word for Easter is? And most people don't know this. Pascha. <laughs> it's Pascha. That's right. It's not a Latin word. It's an Aramaic word, right? Aramaic, so it, right. It's the word Passover. So when Catholics celebrate Easter, we really celebrate Passover, right? Uh, now, it's a whole new Passover, and we can get into that maybe for another show. But just the point is, for me as a Catholic, the idea of a, of a liturgical term that's ambiguous, that you have to put in context in order to get the meaning, is totally plausible, because the, that's what the word Easter is like today. Uh, and that's how Passover was in the first century. So when we turn to John, let's look at the, the four kind of, uh, I like the, what did you use earlier? You, uh, you talked about flags or uh, milestones or something like that. Yeah. Land, as you're moving. yeah, yeah. 
Um, I don't remember the words you used, but it was a good one. Uh, I'm going to steal it and use it later. Um, Milestones, maybe, right? I don't know. That's right. Breadcrumbs, picking them up. Things you encounter while you're reading through. You know, our expectations set up. Let's say, you know, you're reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and all of a sudden we have this interpretive tradition that has taken these flags or milestones and and insisted on a different framework. This is what it is. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. Exactly, yeah. They are. They're kind of mile markers almost, you know. So the question is, do they mean what people say they mean, right? So well, let's look at each one of those together. Although, before I do, I'm sorry, one more other thing. This was something fresh and unique about Jesus and the Last Supper. Here's the cover, by the way. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, oh, there you go. Thanks. Thanks, Caleb. <laughs> okay, so one of the things I didn't know before I started researching the book is that if you actually read— Thanks, Caleb. <laughs> if you actually read uh, Joe and I's scholars on this, most people, like New Testament intros, will say, oh— uh, John clearly presents the Last Supper as a, not a Passover meal, as an ordinary meal, and the Synoptics clearly present it as a Passover. So there's the contradiction. But if you actually start reading Joe and Nine experts like Raymond Brown and Craig Keener and um, uh, even even Boltman, Rudolf Boltman, uh, as well as C.K. Barrett, now like guys who wrote the biggest commentaries on John, you know what you'll discover that they actually say that John is doesn't always depict the Last Supper as a Passover or a non-Passover. They think that John's chronology contradicts itself, that there are some verses that are Paschal and some that aren't. So I was like, wait a second, wait, you don't usually hear that, that John has two chronologies going on. So what I tried to do in the book is show you that actually he doesn't have two chronologies. He has the same chronology as the synoptics. So let's look at those each of those together. Um, first and foremost, John, the first term you encounter in the chronology of the, of the Passion in John is in John chapter 13, verse 1. And this is the one that sets most people off in thinking that John just has a whole different chronology from the synoptics. In 13, 1, it says, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And then it goes on to narrate the supper, right? Like the foot washing at the, at the, at the final supper. Now when most people see that term, before the feast of Passover, which in Greek is, pro de hetes to Pascha, what they say is, oh, well, look, this clearly refers to 24 hours before the lambs were sacrificed, right? Because they just assume that the feast of Passover means 14 Nisan, the day the lambs were sacrificed, right? And and I thought that for years, too. I mean, it's a reasonable assumption, right? Um, The problem is, if you go back in the Second Temple sources, you look at them carefully, it's really interesting. Uh, the feast of Passover uh, never is used to refer to the day the lambs were sacrificed. The feast was learned used to refer, that would be definition one, the sacrifice. It's used to refer to definition two, the meal during which the lamb was eaten, right? Because 14 Nisan wasn't a day of feasting. It was a day of fasting, right? So the term hog in Hebrew or het or te in Greek refers to the meal when we begin to eat the Passover, Passover lamb that was sacrificed on 14 Nisan. So um, and I can give you examples. I go through them in the book. Um, you can look at Numbers 28, for example. On the 15th day of the month is a feast, right? That's, that's when the feast begins. It begins with sunset, after sunset on 15 Nisan. Uh, and then Jubilees, the Book of Jubilees, the Second Temple Period, says the same thing, that the evening on the 15th was the beginning of the feast. So I can't tell you how many Johannine scholars, when they see before the Feast of Passover in John 13, Assume that means before 14 Nisan, when in fact it means before 15 Nisan. In other words, they assume it means before they killed the lamb, definition one, 
but it actually means before they ate the, the lamb, lamb. definition yeah. number two. So, I mean, and, and I'm not the only person who's pointed this out. Uh, Craig Blomberg has said this. Uh, oh, man, back in the 19th century, Albert Edersheim pointed this out. I mean, this is, actually, it goes back even further than that as a Catholic. St. Thomas Aquinas pointed it out in the 13th century, uh, who got it from St. John Chrysostom, who pointed it out in the 5th century. So this has actually been around for a while, um, but it's just all you have to do is read the New Testament light of the Old. If in the Old Testament the feast of Passover is the night the lamb is eaten, then the same thing's true in John. So what is John doing? When he begins his passion narrative and he says before the feast of Passover, he's not pushing the Last Supper back 24 hours in advance to be an ordinary farewell meal. He's actually telling you the Last Supper is the feast of Passover. Mm -hmm. Because immediately before the feast, Jesus, having loved his own, who in the world loved them to the end, and then he gets down on his knees and he starts to wash their feet, right, as the passion begins. So uh, that probably is the, uh, that's the, that's the first milestone that people trip over, and it turns into a stumbling stone in terms of interpretation. Uh, Dr. Petrie, on that, yeah. on that verse, quick question. It also, yeah. he, he says, hati uh, yeah. that the hour had come. Now, we, we could argue the same thing about the word hour. Liter is yeah. he talking about that hour, or is he talking about hour doesn't mean hour in the way yeah. we might think Right? Could you yeah, talk, do you John's have any gospel, comments? Our, in John's gospel, our hora is always a reference to Jesus' entire passion, death, and resurrection, which 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 takes a lot more than one hour, right? So it's right, more of a right, symbolic exactly. term meant to kind of capture the whole magnitude of his passion, of his paschal mystery, so to speak. Yeah, mm -hmm. good. Okay, keep going because now we're going to get into okay. what? Where are you going to go from here? 19? Okay. Well, uh, actually, real quick, before we get to 19, one thing to remember is that in John 13, there are signs that the Last Supper in John is a Passover meal. And, and, and this is where Joanna and scholars admit this. Even advocates of the Joanna hypothesis will be like, hey, certain aspects of John's gospel looks like a Passover meal. For example, they're reclining at the meal, which is not an ordinary posture, John 13, 23, 25. Jesus dips the morsel and then gives it to Judas, which is a, seems a striking parallel with the, with the Mishnaic description of dipping, the, dipping in the dish, right? Uh, this is important. When Judas goes out, they think he's going to give someone something to the poor, which in the mission is very clear. And even back to the book of Tobit, uh, that, a fest, that that's something you would do on a feast day, on a feast night. So Mishnah says that you've got to provide for the poor on the night of Passover. So uh, why would they assume he's going out to give something to the poor? Well, because that's what you do on Passover. In the book of Tobit, Tobias actually stops the meal and says to his son, go out and make sure the, the you know, give something to the poor before we begin so that they can celebrate with us, right? And then, uh, so this idea that uh, even certain elements of John's gospel look like a Passover meal confirm what we're saying about 13.1. Uh, now, what did Boltman and others say? Well, they were like, oh, well, they, they, they made the case that, well, John contradicts himself. So that the description of the meals of Passover, but the chronological indicators aren't. And I think that that's implausible. I think it makes much more sense to think we're just misinterpreting his markers. Okay? Yep. All right. The second milestone is John uh, 18.28. And I think this is the one that, for most people, sends them over the edge into, into accepting the Jonah hypothesis. In 1828, this is on, good, on the morning of Good Friday, of, of the day of the death. It says, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the praetorium. It was early, i.e. early Friday morning. They themselves did not enter the praetorium so that they might not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. In Greek, phagosinto pascha, right? Now, 
if you think that the only meaning of the word Passover is a reference to the lamb, the initial lamb on 14 Nisan, then this verse clearly suggests that John has a different chronology than the synoptics, right? But if you remember that Passover had four definitions in the first century AD, the lamb, the meal, and the peace offerings that were eaten all week long, then all of a sudden this does not contradict the synoptics. In fact, it makes perfect sense. What is John referring to here? Well, he's referring to the fact that the Jewish leaders didn't want to go into Pilate's house, which as a Gentile would be considered defiling, uh, because then they wouldn't be able to partake of the Passover peace offerings that are going to that are eaten not just that day, but for the next seven days, because you're defiled for a whole week if you it would enter the Gentile's house, which had was considered to have corpse impurity. Uh, I won't go into all the details about that. So um, here, John is using definition number three, uh, the Passover peace offerings which were just called Passovers in the first century AD. You didn't have to call it a shalamim. Uh, you, you didn't have to use the word peace offering because it was a special peace offering. It was one eaten during Passover week. Can I throw you down a rabbit trail for just a second? We got a, a question this morning um, from someone asking. They they looked through Deuteronomy. I tried to, I answered this myself, but I, I'd like you to, yeah, to sure. go ahead as well. Uh, in, in Deuteronomy 16, we don't see the word peace offering used. So how are we to understand that, the, that uh, there was actually peace offerings throughout the whole time? And were the people allowed to eat the peace offerings as well? That's a great question. Okay, so uh, the two key pieces of evidence for peace offerings are Deuteronomy 16 and 2 Chronicles 30 together. Okay, so if you look at Deuteronomy 16, 2, what it says here uh, is, you shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord your God from the flock or the herd at the place the Lord will choose, and you shall eat no leavened bread with it, meaning the Passover, seven days you shall eat it with the unleavened bread. So it gives the, the reference of eating the Passover for seven days. A Pesach is eaten for seven days. So clearly, the, the last six days can't refer to the initial lamb, right? So what kind of sacrifice is that, that they're eating seven days? Well, if you go to Second Chronicles 30, 22, it says, the people ate the feast for seven days, sacrificing peace offerings and giving thanks to the Lord. So those two texts are what give us the, the data for the, for the, the assertion that they're not just eating the lamb on the first day, they're eating it for the seven subsequent days as well. Does that help? Yes, Caleb, absolutely. Does that make sense? Yep. I hope that yep. answers the question there. Good, so, good. Uh, and, and by the way, in Second Chronicles 35, 7 and 9, it calls those peace offerings Pesachim. It calls them Passovers, right? Mm -hmm. um, and in the later rabbinic tradition, for those in the audience who know the rabbis well and who are interested in what they had to say, in Babylonian Talmud uh, tractate Zevachim 99b, the rabbis actually bring up that passage from Deuteronomy 16, too. And they say, what does Pesach mean here? What does Passover mean in Deuteronomy 16? And they answer, the peace offerings of Passover, right? The Shelamim of the Passover week. So, I mean, this is really solid tradition of interpretation, not marginal or anything at all. And again, that's just the reality on the ground. When you were in Jerusalem for Pesach in the first century, it's a, it's a whole eight-day extravaganza i mean yeah. it is a really joyful festival and your community barbecue what's that it's a community barbecue it is, it is exactly that which you don't and the, the priests the priests are participating right the people That's are right. participating the priests are offering the people are participating and just like with the original passover lamb the shalomim the pat the peace offering it was something you could take back and, and consume with your family. Right. And, and that's like Leviticus 3, I think, and, Le and Leviticus 7 talks about the that's right. Shalami. The Leviticus sacrifice, especially Leviticus 7, deals with the peace offering. 
Uh, and it's it's an offering of joy that expresses that I'm in shalom with God, right? Yes. And todah, thanksgiving. Yeah. Is and todah, exactly. Thanksgiving to God for uh, that relationship and that covenant. That's what's going on there. So when John says this, again, it's what's happening here is that if you're a modern, especially a modern Gentile reader, right, and you're not familiar with first century Jewish customs and the temple liturgy, or even if you're a Jewish reader, contemporary Jewish reader, who's only familiar with the later rabbinic form of the Passover, when there's not a temple and there's not priesthood and there's not this octave sacrifice going on as in the second temple, it's easy to misread John 18, 28 and just assume, oh, well, he must be referring to the initial lamb when in fact he's referring to the Passover peace offerings of the whole week. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's keep going with John then. We're uh, getting into, I'm, I think you're heading towards John 19. Yeah, that's right. So John 19, verse 14 is the next milestone. This is when uh, Jesus is brought before Pilate for the trial. I mean, not the trial, kind of the public uh, display on Gabbatha, the the judgment, basically. And in 1913, it says this, uh, Pilate brought Jesus out, sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement in Hebrew, Gabbatha, or Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. Now, some translations even render that in English. It was the day of preparation for the Passover. And again, you're an English reader. You see that and you're like, oh, well, this clearly shows that Jesus dies before they eat the Passover meal on Friday night because they're preparing right. for it. I mean, this is this seems really clear in English. The problem was the Gospels weren't written in English. <laughs> they were written in Greek. And so we've got to be careful and make sure that the English translation is accurately reflecting this. Uh, and the Greek word here, when it says preparation, is paraskue. The phrase is paraskue to pascha, which literally just means the preparation of Passover. Now, you could interpret that as a preparation day for Passover, except that if you start looking at all the occurrences of paraskue, that, that word, in John and in the other Gospels, paraskue is never used for the preparation day for Passover. There's no such occurrence. Every time it's used, it's simply the first century Jewish word for what we call Friday. It's because it's the day of preparation for the Sabbath, right, for Shabbat. Um, And just a couple of examples of this. Mark 15 says, uh, when evening had come since it was Paraskue, preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, right? Right. And then again, uh, in Luke 23, it was Paraskue, the Sabbath was beginning, Luke 23, 54. Um, uh, and I could give you more Josephus antiquities. It, look, this is funny. Even John 19 says the same thing. So because of the paraskue of the Jews, paraskue to you die on, as the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Why they lay him there? Because it's paraskue. It's Friday, in other words, and it's a, it's preparation day for the Sabbath. Um, that's what paraskue means. So um, once you realize that paraskue is just the word for Friday. Then you go back to John 19, 14 and read it again. And what you'll see is that in the original Greek, what we have here is definition four. Passover meaning Passover week, the whole seven to eight day octave, right? So when John says, uh, now it was the preparation of Passover, what he means was it was the Friday of Passover week. It was the paraskue of that Passover festival, which is tied to the Sabbath coming, and that's why they're going to have to get the bodies off the cross and other things, right? We, so we, this, we, we see we see even uh, scholars who hold to the Joannine hypothesis agreeing with this, right? That's right. Rudolf Bultmann, 
who takes the Jonah hypothesis, says, well, if Pascha can signify the entire seven-day feast, then Paraskue to Pascha, the preparation of Passover, could mean, quote, the Friday of Passover week. That's Rudolf Bultmann right there. I mean, right. he, he admits it. But you know what he says? Well, John's contradicting himself. Hmm. Like, he thinks it's a remnant of the synoptic chronology in John. Joachim Yeremias thought the same thing. This is a trace of the synoptic chronology in John. And I would respond to that, how about maybe John's chronology is the same as the synoptic yeah, chronology? In exactly. other words, it's not a trace of the synoptic chronology. This is the synoptic chronology because the synoptic chronology and the Jonah chronology are the same chronology. Yeah. Jesus eats a Passover meal at the time of the Feast of Passover on Thursday night, and then Jesus is crucified on the Friday of Passover week, just like in the synoptics. But if I might, yes, this is wonderful, Dr. Petrie. Um, we're intersecting the the problem set of the lexicographer, right? Yes. In other words, I I just pulled up BDAG for mm -hmm. Paraskue, and and it's funny. There's a, in such a, a robust, you know, uh, nicely bibliographed, you know, and and sourced uh, text. It just says simply, it it, it quotes Paraskue. To Pascha, day of preparation for the Passover, mm -hmm. and then in and then in parentheses or Friday of Passover week, but no, <laughs> yeah. no bibliography, no. And so we see where we see where whoever did the entry for Parascue yeah. for the BDAG, they got to the ceiling of their resource, and they're like, well, you know, they're on a time crunch. They've got <laughs> all these things to do, so they kind of just give this little nod. It's a little right quiet to the, what we're calling yeah. yeah. Yeah, a little nod to it, and then, but you know, to, I got to yeah, move on, right? And the funny thing about that—that's funny. I, I've seen that entry in the Bauer, Art, Gingrich, and Danker. You said the BDAG. That's the—that's the affectionate abbreviation for it. But in that famous and wonderful Greek lexicon, I saw that entry and I laughed when I saw it because the reason the lexicographer had to put Friday of Passover week there is because the person writing the entry recognized. Parascue never means preparation for Passover in any other New Testament text. It's, that's not just not a usage. The only time anyone says it means that is John 19, 14, because they're presuming the chron chronological conflict with the synoptics. But the reality is, just from a linguistic perspective, it just means the Friday of Passover, which makes sense if Passover is a seven-day festival, right? It's the Friday of that week. Actually, it's I think a well-established uh, Jewish Greek, I guess you could call it. This it is, is very well-established Jewish Greek. Josephus says the same thing, right? Uh, and this was one of the, you know, Caleb, you had asked me, what's one of the fresh things or the unique things about Jesus in the Last Supper that, that I did? And one of them was that a lot of people who will take the Passover hypothesis will base their arguments entirely on the later rabbinic uses of the terms. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to look at the Torah itself, at Scripture, and at Second Temple sources. In other words, what are the contemporary sources like Josephus and Philo? Because those are the ones that are closest to the New Testament. Now, it's confirmed by later rabbinic sources, but you don't want to hang your argument just on 3rd and 4th exactly. century sources. One of the biggest things that we've learned, I think, in the last 20 years, starting with, with Jacob Neusner and, mm -hmm. and some other minds, it's like the, the rabbinic texts have to be studied in and of them their own selves, not as background to the first century. Right. In other words, you have this this parsing between the maybe uh, 19th century, you know, German yes. scholarship agenda sure. to to use rabbinic literature and as try I, to scour through it and mine through it for sources to the truth behind the gospels. 
So there's kind of been this reclaiming of rabbinic literature. No, I mean, there's the book. I don't know if you've seen the, uh, is it Shia Secunda, uh, the Iranian Talmud, right? I mean, it's it's pushing it all the way to say, look, we have to look at the Babylonian Talmud as a product of 4th, 5th century Sasanian yeah. uh, Mesopotamia, not as... Uh, you know, and there, and all the problems of manuscript uh, differences and, yeah, and all the and things have so problematized the use of rabbinic literature. That's why century. I would say that from my perspective, those problems make it, the, for me, the best way to use rabbinics in contemporary New Testament scholarship as corroborative or confirmatory evidence for what you already find in the scriptures exactly. and in the Second Temple source. When Now, when the yeah. rabbis correlate with that, that's 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 important because you've got a stream of tradition going exactly. you know, scripture, second temple to the rabbi. So you don't want to ignore them. But at the same time, and that's what I noticed. I noticed most people who were arguing like, let's use here. Um, well, maybe I shouldn't use any. Well, I'll use a name. Barry Smith did an art, a book on Jesus and the Last Supper uh, back in the 90s, I think it was. And he argued for a version of what's uh, he argued for a solution that's somewhat similar to the, the Jonah. Hypo I'm sorry, not Jonah. Slow down. The Passover hypothesis, as I'm giving it here, but um, there wasn't. It was all hanging on rabbinic references, and some of them that he cited were actually kind of questionable and taken out of context. Um, so what I wanted to do was go back and say, what do the Second Temple sources and the exactly. and the Torah yeah. itself say? Can we make the case on those? In other words, so even if we didn't have the rabbis, we would know that Passover had these different meanings: the lamb, the meal. The, the, the peace offerings right. and the week we would know that from just scripture and second right. temple sources right exactly it would give Precisely. us enough it would give us enough to, to to make these conclusions about the about the gospel of john all right so and that's our that's our sound method there yeah, that's, I think, because I, here, here's the danger the danger with if we don't have the priorities dr petrie as you're laying them out yeah. what what we've seen time and again is is an uh, anachronistically yeah. Yeah. uh smuggling in tradition that weren't in fact second temple tradition or even that and, may or may to not try to do that midrashic yeah may may not but then we get in this world of speculation and we're no longer dealing like what i would say honestly uh and in in an honor to messiah in terms of history you know yeah, looking and at development the idea stuff. yep that's yep uh, that's how i see it in this case with paris QA, then it's just a greek issue like this this just means friday man <laughs> sorry yeah it yeah. just means Friday. And so if John says he's he's judged on the Friday of Passover, that would be like me as a Catholic saying, I went to work on the Tuesday of Easter. That would mean the Tuesday of Easter week. It's the exact same connotation uh, that, that, that that kind of liturgical ambiguity has to do. Which, by the way, when I was given this paper at SBL, Society of Biblical Literature, in November— uh, I was excited because N.T. Wright came to sit in at the back. I don't know if you remember that, Caleb. I was, sit, I was sitting close to him. For the, for Caleb, the Caleb handed it. Caleb made sure he had a handout. Oh, that's great. <laughs> well, it was funny because, yeah, as you know, Wright is an Anglican bishop. And when I made that comment about Easter, the word Easter being liturgically ambiguous, you know, it's like so as a Catholic, Easter can mean Easter Saturday night. It can mean Easter Sunday. It can mean Easter week. In the back, I saw Wright do this. Like, he's like, yes, the same head. thing as the Anglican Here's church. funny because, because I've been to many a paper where I've seen him do this. <laughs> oh. <laughs> not not at your paper. Not okay, at yours. Good. I hope not. But uh, I, I have seen him and then get up yeah. and, and leave, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> well, but that case, was great. I thought it was, you know, it's it's helpful, though. If you're coming, like for me, coming from a liturgical, a high liturgical tradition, Sometimes, you know, um, I think it helps me see things in the Second Temple period that other people might miss if they, they're coming from different Christian traditions, right? 
Uh, and so I hope that that's a contribution that's a legitimate one that can help people read the gospel. Okay, I, I know that we're we're hitting uh, uh, at about fifty six minutes here, so I know we're oh, gonna, we're we're, co we're coming down to the end of our time. There's definitely one passage that I really wanted to get to. You've you've hit on yeah. on most of the questions that I had, um, and I think that maybe I maybe I'm taking a little bit different uh, approach to this than you are, but I sure. like your, I like your approach as well, and I think that either or could be the case is uh, in Mark fifteen forty six where it says that Joseph bought the linen. Okay, and we have oh, okay. yeah. we have a lot of people, and we can get to whatever you thought I was going to say because I, I want to hear that too. But I thought you were going to say something else, but that's okay. Okay, keep going. Okay, so so uh, obviously in the Hebrew roots in the Messianic movement, we have people who say, "Oh, there's no way that Joseph of Arimathea would have gone and bought a linen if it was really sad. If it was really uh, you know uh, Saturday or Friday, you know he's he's going. He's and it's a festival. It's Friday. It's a festival Shabbat, right? It's the fifteenth of Nisan. It's it's Friday." Day. He goes and he buys the linen. That would never happen on a festival Shabbat. Okay, um, so I, I, how do you how do you uh, reconcile that with him buying something on a festival Shabbat? And could he even okay. buy something? Would people even be around to sell him something? Yeah, this is a great this is a great question. Uh, it kind of goes back, although well, there was another passage in John I wanted to get to, but um, we, you well, want to we'll do that first. What do you, you want to just do? finish that fourth text? Absolutely. So that we and we'll come back to the Joseph for just a minute. We'll maybe we can conclude yep. with that. Yeah, talk about yeah. It. go for it. So the last text that I just want to highlight for the Jonah hypothesis, the last mile marker was in John 19, verse 30 to 30. Um, I'm sorry, 1931, mm -hmm. which is the description after Jesus dies uh, on the cross. It says, since it was Friday, Parascue, <clears throat> or literally since it was preparation, in order to prevent the bodies from remaining on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a great day. Ah, uh, yes. Megale hehemera. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away, right? So the question here is, what does John mean when he says that that, that Sabbath, after Jesus was crucified, was a mega Sabbath, was a megale, a great day, okay? <clears throat> and this is, this is an interesting point. Um is that if you look, it would make sense if Jesus is uh, celebrating the Last Supper as a Passover meal, right, That, and then he would die on 15 Nisan, the next day in the first century would be the day of the sheaf offering, of the Omer, right? It would be, in other words, it would be a special liturgical day. Philo, in his uh, treatise on special laws, talks about the fact that the day after Passover, the day after the uh, 15 Nisan, it was called the sheaf because of the name given to it from the ceremony that consisted in bringing up to the altar a sheaf of the first fruit, both of the land uh, and of the whole earth, right? So again, even advocates of the Jonah hypothesis, like my teacher from Notre Dame, John Meyer, admit that the idea that this is a great Sabbath really makes sense if it correlates with the offering of the sheaves, right? Uh, and now, why does that matter? Well, then, um, well, because that would be just another sign in John that he's following the synoptic chronology, right? So if the next day is the sheaf offering, it's like how much more do they need to get the bodies off the cross? Because what's going to happen is there's going to be a liturgical procession into the temple, right, to offer up the omer. And if all the people coming in see a dead body hanging overnight on the cross, guess what that brings down? The curse of Deuteronomy 21, right? I mean, this is a big deal. I mean, you're going to have basically a riot in Jerusalem if they think that Pilate basically brought down a curse on the land. On, on, during the Pascha feast and 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 when they go up to the temple for the for the Omer, so I think that little word in uh, uh, John nineteen, a great day, 
co- correlates to the synoptic chronology mm-hmm. again. Uh, and by the way, John uses the same term in John chapter 7. He calls the last day of tabernacles the great day because that was the day of the of the uh, the the offering of the of the water, the pouring of the water for the feast of tabernacles and the great festival of light, like the, the, in the in the temple. I can't go into all the details, but if you know the rabbinic tradition, you know what I'm talking about. So um, he calls that a great day. So in other words, it wasn't just that it was a Sabbath; it was that it was a Sabbath that correlated with a feast of the Omer during Passover week. So they got to get those bodies off the crosses, and that's just kind of for me. Once I saw that, for me, it was like all the pieces of the puzzle fell in place here. You John, can't like unsee it now. It's like no, you, you can't go. You yeah. can't. <laughs> That's funny. You can't unsee it. No, it's true. So that each the irony is, guys, each marker that many contemporary readers use to say that John contradicts the synoptics are precisely the evidence that shows he has the same chronology. But you Great. have to know the Second Temple period. You got to know the Jewish sources. Perfect. Okay, so let's move now to Mark, because I, I know a lot of people, okay, sure. this is like the yeah, linchpin yeah. for a lot of people. Oh, I didn't realize this was the linchpin. Okay, so um, let me um, let me just uh, go back then to our discussion before, right? So let's, let me turn there for a sec. So this is Mark 1546, right? Is that what you brought up? Correct. Uh, Caleb? Yep. Uh, where Joseph goes and bought a linen shroud. Okay, perfect. Let me Let me begin with the internal argument first. Um, if it's inconceivable that, that Joseph bought the linen shroud on 15 Nissan on the, on the day after they ate the lambs on Thursday night because of rules about festal rest, um, then why didn't Mark know that? That'd be one question. Right? In other words, Mark doesn't seem to think it's implausible or impossible for Joseph to buy the day, buy a, a linen shroud on 15 Nissan because Mark's the one who tells us he bought it on that 15th of Nissan. You see what I mean? Like, so just with terms of the internal evidence of the gospel itself, we've got a first century, this is important, a first century witness by an author who Mark, in this case, not only knows Greek, but knows what? He knows Aramaic too, right? And he's familiar with the Jewish scriptures. He knows Judaism well. You see that throughout Mark's gospel. He presupposes. Now, some things he'll explain. Obviously, he's got some Gentiles in view, but he presupposes that you know Judaism, and he certainly knows it. I mean, Look at some of the tech, intertextual works that's been done on Mark lately, and you'll see that. So Mark doesn't think it's implausible. So this is a first-century source saying it's not implausible for Joseph to go and buy that linen shroud. Uh, now, but what about the external evidence? Well, again, w- one of the things scholars will do is say, well, it's impossible for Joseph to have done this on a festal Sabbath, as you put it, right? Um, and this takes us back to that question, well, what exactly was not permitted on a festal Sabbath in the first century? And the answer is, we don't really know. <laughs> okay, that's that's the first part. It's like, it's not clear. Because if you look at Leviticus, the distinction between a festal Sabbath and the rest of a regular Sabbath is, all that's clear is, a regular Sabbath, Shabbat, that is more rigorous than a festal Sabbath. Because in, in a regular Sabbath, you can't do any work. Festal Sabbath, you just can't do laborious work. Well, what qualifies as laborious work? That's not really clear, right? And as Sanders points out, there was a more debate about that than any other rabbinic issue on these issues of rest. And so there is no second temple source that we have that says what Joseph is doing here is impossible. There just isn't one, right? Um, and there is one that's saying what he's doing is possible, namely Mark. And I guess, is Matthew say the same thing? Does Matthew tell us that he got a shroud too? Because it doesn't that say, be- it, it, it says that he got oh. a shroud, he took he the shroud. He doesn't say bought. Okay, I got it. I got you. Okay. So, and then um, 
the other final thing I would point out is that if you go back and look at the Mishnah carefully, it looks like that it present, permits the acquisition of a coffin or a shroud on the Sabbath. So if you look at Mishnah Shabbat 23.4, it says they may await nightfall at the Sabbath limit to see the business of the reception of a bride or the burial of a corpse to fetch its coffin or its wrappings, okay, which would be, of course, the shroud. So there seems to be permission there uh, given to take care of certain necessary things, like preparing a body, right, for burial in Mishnah Shabbat 23. Um, now, some scholars have suggested that uh, what may have happened here, too, is that Joseph left a pledge with someone and so that he could do the actual payment later so as not to violate the fest arrest. I'm open to that, too. But it seems to me that if the Mishnah, if we have no second simple sources prohibiting it, and we have a second simple source permitting it, namely Mark, and the Mishnah allows for certain necessities, like getting a, sh a shroud uh, to take place on a Sabbath, how much more so on a festal Sabbath, which is less than a regular Sabbath, not greater than a regular Sabbath? That would be my response. Do you have another suggestion, Caleb? Because I'm open. I like. I actually like what you're saying because I think that I think the idea of of taking a body to uh, laying a body down during the Sabbath, whether it's a regular Sabbath or a festival Sabbath, I think that that would be permitted. And yeah. uh, but at the same time, and this is I, I want to be very hesitant because I know that Dr. Petrie, your Greek is uh, leaps and bounds better than mine, and obviously. Rob being my Greek t Greek teacher, I don't I don't want to shame him here, but um, yeah. I, I see that Mark uh, also uses the same word bot and he uses it in the same form, which is aorist. And so uh, my thought is, well, is and that it's a, it, and it's well, it's in a participle also, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. it, as the aorist participle in a clause, it's a it's it's a temporal clause. It's not even the main meat of the sentence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're not really given a time. Exactly. You know, my, and we see we, flexibility we, with time. We see it with but the women. I like we see it with the women too, right? The women they only in Mark, only in Mark are we uh, is the word bought used for the spices when it says that uh -huh. they bought and prepared the spices. But once again, it's in the heiress form. So my thought oh, okay. is my thought is that Mark yeah. is actually not using uh, a specific time marker, but it could be translated almost as the spices that they had previously bought. Yeah, or, or having bought a shroud or having purchased a garment or yeah. linen, a linen cloth, he went to the tomb and prepared. Oh, that's fascinating. I did not look as closely at that as I should have. But, I but in any that. case, Dr. Dr. Petrie, I, what I, I really think there's a lot of value with connecting that John 1931. Yeah. Uh, because there is a uh, it's not just Yeshua's body. Yeah. Right. I mean, we're, we're, the camera zooming yeah. us in on on what those who are caring for for uh, the Messiah's body are, are yeah. up to. But we've seen the general declaration, we got to get these down. And in the Jewish culture, there's a, a high value on caring uh, for, for the bodies. And so, yeah. so it's not like we're just get, get these bodies down and, and hide them out of sight. But there's actually, presumably families may be, I don't know, caring for these other two bodies as well. Um, and the necessity yeah. that you point out with doing yeah. that uh, overrides um, that's exactly right. you know general general uh, rules about rules. even right. Sabbath rest or festival rest. That's right. The necessity here demands that you would care for that body and get it and get it buried. Now they're going to come the back. Same, and, it's the same with you mentioned the 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 wedding. You know the connection in in Shabbat yeah. about the wedding yeah. and the the Mishnah itself starts out with the story of of the sons of Rabban Gamliel who they come home from a, a wedding feast and he asked them. 
have you recited the Shema tonight? And they're like, no, because the obligation to recite the Shema at evening was overridden by the celebrating and the joy of the wedding. And he said, well, the sun hasn't coming up, so you can still fulfill your obligation. Yeah, right. <laughs> but so we have this weightier, lighter kind of scale that that is attentive to the needs of of life and living. That's exactly right. And, and an important thing to remember, too, here is that according to Mark's chronology, this is it's a festal Sabbath, which is lighter even than a regular one, not greater. Right. So that how much more so the case, right, mm. that this would be something that necessity could override. Okay. Um, and especially if the Greek's ambiguous, too, if it's something you already had, then that, that's a slam dunk. There's no there's no need to even really bother ourselves about it, much less to, to and this is important, too. When you say that's impossible, you're denying the Mark and narrative. You're saying that the market narrative couldn't have happened. Right, and, exactly. And that's, and that's a, like, again, just from a, I'm not talking about from a faith perspective, but just as a historian, when it comes to getting shrouds or wrapping bodies on festal Sabbaths, the only second temple source I know of is Mark, and it says you can do it, right? right. Or that at least it happened in this instance. So right. for me, I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt to the, to the contemporary source that's making that claim uh, rather than, uh, you know, a scholar saying, well, it's difficult for me to imagine that. Well, it might be difficult for you to imagine that, but it wasn't difficult for Mark to imagine <laughs> It wasn't that. difficult for Mark, right. Yeah, that's that's important. I think that's an important historical point. Okay, I know that we're uh, towards the end of our time now, but uh, before we plug uh, whatever, whatever you're working on now and also plug the books that you've already written, is there anything else that you want to talk that you just want to touch on in terms of uh, the the uh, Passover hypothesis and or anything that you think still needs to be dealt with? Oh, gosh. Um, that's tough. <laughs> this was like a 120-page chapter in the book. <laughs> it's really a little book inside of the of the book, Jesus and the Last Supper. And so there's so many things to, that I could say about I guess for me, uh, let, me let me make one general point. Um, the whole question of the date of the Last Supper, like the apparent contradiction between John and the Synoptics, when this is something that many introductions to the New Test Testament, like for example, Bart Ehrman's uh, famous Oxford introduction to the New Testament, uh, which is probably one of the best-selling New Testament intros out there. I mean, they make a lot of hay out of this as kind of like Exhibit A for how the Gospels aren't trying to give you a historically reliable account of what happened to Jesus of Nazareth. And that they would take, I mean, Ehrman actually says this in the beginning of his book, Jesus Interrupted. He says, when I want to show my students how the Gospels will willfully alter history to make a theological point, I give them the, the classic case of the contradiction between John and the Synoptics on the day of the Last Supper. In other words, if they're willing to move the crucifixion to a different date in order to, to make a, a theological point, whether it's, you know, Moving it to Friday, as the Jonah hypothesis will say, or I'm sorry, moving it to Thursday, as the Jonah hypothesis says, or moving it to Friday, as the 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 John uh, as the synoptic hypothesis says, whatever, whichever one. If they're willing to move the date of the crucifixion or move the Last Supper um, for theological reasons, that shows you that they're primarily theologically driven and they're not interested in being faithful to the historical reality. And that kind of frees Airmen up to dismiss a whole whole swaths of of, of the synoptic and Jonah accounts as unhistorical. And I guess what I would say is um, find another example, because if you if you want to make your case that the that the that the gospels contradict one another on a major substantial issue here, this is not whether there's one angel or two angels at the tomb or whatever. You know, this is like a major chronological problem. Uh, I don't think this is the one to go to because 
if you situate in his first century Jewish context, they have the same chronology. There yeah. is no contradiction. It's the contradiction is more apparent than real. I guess is my thrust. And then the second thing is, if you have doubts that I'm saying that, then I mean, if you have doubts about that, then why do all the major Johannine scholars, Rudolf Bultmann, Julius Wellhausen, C.K. Barrett, Raymond Brown, Craig Keener, why do all of them and Joachim Jeremias to say that John has two contradictory chronologies in it? Is that a plausible hypothesis? Or is it more reasonable to think that John has one chronology and that we've been misinterpreting these technical Jewish terms? The, the second is just more plausible to me. And therefore, there's really just one passion narrative and one passion chronology in the Excellent. four testimonies that we have in the first century. So that's kind of like a, the upshot of it for me in terms of just the basic reliability of the Gospels, in terms of their what they're giving us about the life and the death of, of Yeshua. Yeah. Perfect. Okay, so I'll before go. I plug the books that I have sitting on my desk, um, what are you currently working on in terms of a book? Or are oh, you? Yeah, <laughs> I have like four books or five books I'm working on right now. Uh, let's see. Uh, your readers might be interested, especially given what I just said. Uh, I'm not working on this one anymore. It just came out last year. This book is called The Case for Jesus, the Biblical and Historical Evidence for uh, Christ. And what it is, is it's a, um, it's, it's a, it's a more general audience uh, book, so it's a re real readable overview of two major issues. The origin of the Gospels, like how do we get them, what kind of books are they, genre, are they biographies, that kind of thing. What about the lost Gospels, what about the dates and all that. And then the, and then the divine claims of Jesus of Nazareth. Does, does Jesus claim to be divine? And so I look at the question of Jesus' divinity but from an ancient Jewish perspective. So I try to show that, and it's really focused on the synoptics primarily, that even in the synoptics, Jesus claims to be divine, but he does it in a Jewish way, using parables and riddles and allusions to the Old Testament. And if you don't know the Old Testament, you're not going to see, you're not going to catch it. Like he, he both conceals and reveals his identity using uh, uh, Jewish methods of teaching and Jewish uh, allusions. So this was kind of a, a kind of counterpoint to Bart Ehrman's book, How Jesus Became God, that came out a couple of years ago. I didn't write it as like a contra airman, but but I, that book made me kind of uh, think that that was something I needed to work on. Uh, so that's one book that just came out. Right now I'm actually working, um, I just finished an introduction to the Old Testament, nice. about 1,500 nice. pages. Uh, that'll be out in um, November. I'm very excited about that. Wrote it with my friend of mine, John Bergs. We went to the University of Notre Dame together. He's an Old Testament scholar. I'm a New Testament. We wanted to do one, uh, an intro of the Old Testament that would draw on all that, old and new, Second Temple sources. It's it's fantastic. I mean, at least I think it's fantastic. I love it. But is it is that, it uh, being being published through Erd, Erdman's again? No, that one's actually through Ignatius Press. Okay. Um, and then and then finally, I am working on another book for Erdman's that I'm super excited about. Kind of taking part two of this book on the divine identity of Jesus. And doing a book like this, an academic, like a full-length study, mm -hmm. and that'll be tentatively, it's titled "Jesus and Early High Christology." Nice. And so, what I'm doing there, it, yeah, I'm really excited about it. Is I'm looking at the contemporary discussion, which is, you know, Richard Balcom and uh, Larry Hurtado, and a lot of scholars are saying it looks like the earliest Christology of Paul, for example, is divine Christology. Uh, Chris Tilling. Chris Tilling. <laughs> yeah, Chris Tilling, great friend, awesome guy, <laughs> wrote a brilliant book on Paul and divine Christology. So a lot of work's been done on Paul, um, but then the question still remains, well, what is the origin of this divine Christology? And if you look at uh, historical Jesus research, for example, 
the idea that Jesus ever claimed to be divine is just not even on the table almost. I mean, the whole quest is is rooted in the, a denial of that, back, going back to Ray Morris and David Strauss. So what I'm going to do is actually in that book, I want to explore the evidence in the synoptic gospels that Jesus does in fact make divine claims, but that he does it in a Jewish way. And that one of the things scholars are missing is because, uh, are missing it because it's in riddles and parables uh, and actions that only make sense in light of the Old Testament background. And that frequently, frankly, uh, frequently just get ignored in books on the, the historical Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just finished, uh, well, anyway, I don't, I'm sorry. You, you asked me about a contemporary project. Excellent. You get a no, long great. answer, man. No, no, that's good. Uh, so, uh, so that one's, uh, I'm working on that. Erdman's is going to be publishing that when? as soon as it's, but it might be, it might be a little longer down the road because it's a big project. It's kind of like this. It's going to be a couple of years. And are, are you, uh, will we see you again at this year's SBL in Boston? I am hoping to be there. I, I go to SBL every single year. So I would love to, to see you guys there. We'll and be there. Was a lot this year. In really fact, enjoyed it. In fact, uh, Van Hoff is uh, presenting two different papers in two different sections this year at SBL. So Whoa. we're excited for that. Yeah, that's really not a good idea. <laughs> exactly. exactly. I did that last year with like two papers. I was like, wait, why did I do this to myself? <laughs> why did I sign up? For this? I get to be doubly nervous, you know? Yeah, exactly. Oh. Okay, so uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you don't know already, you can always look at uh, an excellent book by Dr. Petrie, which I haven't plugged yet uh, nearly as much. I, sh- I have, but not nearly as much as the other one. This one is Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist, which is an excellent book, and I have actually really enjoyed this. There's a little bit of a personal touch also at the beginning of that book, which is very nice. And then also uh, Jesus in the Last Supper, a dynamite 517-page book on the Last Supper, which also has 120-page chapter 3 on what we've been talking about today, which is the chronology of the Passion. I'd like to thank... I'm sorry. Could we say 500 readable pages? But, yeah. <laughs> I try to write them as clearly as possible, you know, so that people will you can pick them up and read them, even if even if you're not a professional. Okay, scholar. on a on just a personal level, I was like, you know, you get you're getting close to the end, but you don't think you are right, and like mm-hmm. I, I thought I had like a hundred pages left, and all of a sudden it was like conclusion, and I was like. <gasps> Oh my word! And sure enough, I only had three pages left because there's that much that's all footnotes, which are you know all, all your references. Great, but it, it, this is an excellent book, and I, I can't recommend it enough. It is certainly worth the money, and uh, it's it's an easy easy read. Even though 500 pages might seem daunting, it's not. It's actually uh, it was an easy read, and I and it was a quick read too, which was I read slow. So, um, all right. Well, I've, I've been working on this. That that whole that book took me 10 years to write, and the day of the Last Supper was in many ways the heart of it. So I'm really excited to share. That that because I, I think it's a fresh and and a, a contribution to the New Testament studies that I that I really was excited to make and I appreciate y'all giving me time to talk about it here. Absolutely, thank you so much. All right, th- our, our joy. Yeah. yeah, our 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 huge thanks to Dr. Petrie. We look forward to uh, what's coming out next. Thank you to everyone uh, for tuning in, and we uh, hope to see you next week. And happy Passover to everyone. Since this is airing on April twelfth, happy Passover to you as well, Dr. Petrie. All right, thank you much. much. We hope you've enjoyed this interview and this conversation, and we hope that this conversation has glorified our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah.